Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. Amor McKinney is out this week. I am Alex Lawson, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Haley Knopf. Hello, Haley. Hey, Alex. What is up? Our boss isn't here, and I'm just hoping we're, go- we're all going to be on our best behavior, I think. <laughs> I mean, I guess I you can't can, make you, that promise. That's a promise you're making. I don't know about me over here. Okay. Well, I mean... I will try. I guess, yeah, if you want to go rogue, I, I literally can't. can't you are 3,000 miles away. I can't stop you. Um, <laughs> but uh, regardless of our own behavior, we do have an awesome show for you. Coming up in a little bit, you will hear a discussion that we had with Juan Carlos Rodriguez. He's our senior environmental reporter. He's talking about a case that is on the docket for the upcoming Supreme Court term. It's about a fishing industry rule, but... Don't turn off the pod yet because it's actually the reason we're talking about it has little to do with the fishing industry and more to do with what the court will do over the Chevron deference, which if you're a legal nerd like we are, you know that that is this decades long legal doctrine concept that basically requires courts to give executive agencies, you know, a lot of deference when they're making very complicated rules and regulations. And this has become kind of a there's been like a, a really long simmering proxy fight from, from the conservative wing of the court that thinks that this needs to be reined in a little bit. They haven't quite taken a huge bite out of that yet, but this case, JC talks to us about why they might do it, and it's super interesting, so definitely stick around for that. We should keep the chit-chat to a minimum, I suppose, because we do have a lot of housekeeping to get to, Haley. A couple updates. Why don't you start us off there? We do, we do. It was a big week for uh, developments and things we have discussed on the pod, which is, of course, how I yeah. just measure my life in general. <laughs> yeah. So the first update we have here is on a 96-year-old Federal Circuit Judge Pauline Newman. And she, of course, has been accused of refusing to comply with an investigation into whether she is still mentally fit to serve as a judge. And we've talked about this investigation a few times on the show And as you may recall, in August, a panel recommended that she be suspended for a year. And that was because she refused to undergo medical tests as a part of this. Well, this week, she was indeed suspended. So she can no longer hear any cases for the next year. She's got to take a a backseat for a while. Um, If you want more of a refresher on that whole ordeal, I would invite you to revisit episode 310, which was our our most recent uh, deeper dive into it. Yeah, good call on that. I would also recommend everyone read uh, Ryan Davis's reporting on that. He wrote on this, the implementation of this one-year ban. Really good stuff, as always, from him. The other quick update I wanted to give regards the impeachment trial of uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. We talked about that a couple of times over the last few months. And I did just want to circle the square here because that trial is over. It was a nine-day trial in the Texas Senate. And after about eight hours of deliberation, the senators acquitted Paxton on all 16 articles of impeachment. He was accused of various ethics violations, abusing his office, mostly to help a campaign donor and real estate investor. His name is Nate Paul. This was a little bit of a surprise because it was frankly shocking that in a Republican-controlled legislature like Texas that a Republican AG even got rung up on charges like this. But like I say, there was about eight hours of deliberation, and most of these, there's 31 members of the 
Texas Senate. Most of these acquittal votes came in at a vote of 16 to 14, which means there are there are 19 Republicans and 12 Democrats in the legislature, which means there was some defecting there from party lines, which I thought was interesting. But long story short, uh, Ken Paxton is back on the job. He's back in the AG's office doing the normal things he's doing. So definitely he's revisit. He's back, baby. Yeah. De- definitely revisit our old episodes to detail that. But uh, with that out of the way, we have some news to get to before we talk to JC. And I wanted to start us off with what's becoming quite an ugly brawl between a big law powerhouse, Crowell and Mooring, and one of its former clients. That client is the pharmacy giant Walgreens. And Walgreens is trying to undo a $642 million arbitration award in a drug pricing dispute that was brought by the health insurance company Humana. And much of this effort to get this arbitration award set aside is hinging on allegations that Crowell and Mooring basically violated very basic ethics rules by advising Walgreens on its pricing policies, only to then turn around and solicit a lawsuit from Humana and other insurers to challenge those policies years later. So that's the nut of what's going on here. Alex, this is kind of our uh, our bread and butter here. We've yeah. got a massive firm, a massive client, a massive amount of money, and quite an accusation to lob at one's lawyers. Before we you know, get more into the meat here, how did this dispute get started? Yeah, this is a little weedy. I'm going to stick to the high points here because it involves kind of complex drug pricing schemes and litigation that then turned into arbitration. But the basics to know, this started back in 2008 when Walgreens set up this program that allowed uninsured customers to pay an annual fee for discounted drugs. And at this time, Walgreens had a deal in place with Humana, which required the insurer to pay basically just ordinary customary fees to Walgreens for the Humana covered drugs. And you can see how there would be some tension there where the insurer has to pay the pharmacy, but then now the pharmacy has this discounted pricing program that it's rolling out. And at that time, Walgreens retained the services of Crowell and Mooring to ensure that this program did not interfere with this Humana contract. And Crowell and Mooring determined that, no, it doesn't conflict with that, and everything's above board. The contracts are written in a way that allows for these types of things, and it's all good. Now, fast forward to 2017, And Crowell and Mooring decides to circulate a memo to Humana and other insurance companies basically saying the exact opposite of this, that Walgreens is actually overcharging the insurers by not allowing them to pay lower prices under the discount model. And hey, uh, if you want to sue them, we at Crowell and Mooring, (laughs) we're happy to help you. So they were basically soliciting clients to sue Walgreens over this program that they are alleged to have advised on. Now, this whole dispute There was a lawsuit, but it ended up in arbitration where Walgreens made more claims of unethical behavior, saying that Crowell actually hired the arbitrator that was hearing the case. They hired that guy to oversee six of the firm's other pending arbitration cases, basically saying they had him on the payroll, meaning that he couldn't possibly examine the case objectively when he decided to hand Humana this $642 million award. So those are the basics. And the last sort of year plus has seen Walgreens, you know, feverishly trying to get this award thrown out in court. And much of that effort 
involves, you know, these claims of Crowell and Mooring's side-switching and currying favor with the arbitrator. That has been the central issue um, as they try to, to get this nine-figure award thrown out. Wow. <laughs> there, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. Very entertaining stuff for, for us to watch from the sidelines. But how has this been going so far for Walgreens? Well, um, not too well. And I should say that all those all that background that I gave you comes mostly from Walgreens' various filings in the case, um, and that uh, Crowell and Mooring has basically called these allegations meritless, and that they said, actually, we just represented a Walgreens subsidiary on this very narrow issue of a certain portion of the contract. You can see how the details become important here, and then that that subsidiary was then later sold to a third party, so that lets them out of any conflict or anything like that. But the district judge that is hearing the case has thus far been fairly sympathetic to Walgreens' claims of this unethical behavior on the firm's part. There was a status hearing in June in which this was all laid out, and she said very bluntly, in 22 years of litigating, including defending law firms, including defending law firms on conflict issues, I have never seen anything like this. She was visibly agitated by what Walgreens was saying about Crowell and Mooring here. So... Um, yeah, for the firm, it's looking a little uh, bleak. Quite a declaration there from a judge with a lot of experience, presumably. Yeah. So what have we seen since that hearing? Are there any other big developments to know about? Yeah, so the reason we're talking about the case this week is because Crowell is trying to either delay or entirely scrap this planned hearing in the court, which is focused specifically on this ethics issue and these claims against them. It's going to tackle this question of its conduct head on. And it basically argues, again, in very weedy terms on jurisdictional issues and contract interpretation issues, that Walgreens has basically waived its right to argue that Crowell has committed ethics violations. Now, this week, Walgreens called that argument basically a Hail Mary pass and just said, like, the court should not entertain this. And that the quote from the Walgreens brief was that the firm is, quote, desperate to avoid its appalling conduct taking center stage in a public proceeding. And they also pointed out that the court has rejected other attempts in the last couple of weeks and months by the firm to basically get out of this on a jurisdictional question. Now, the judge's prior comments that I just talked about suggest that she is certainly keen to hear this fully briefed in court and fully examined. Um, and it remains to be seen whether the jurisdictional arguments will hold sway there but either way, um, I, think, I think it's fair to say it's getting pretty ugly for Crowell and Mooring, and I'm uh, very eager to see where this one goes. So we'll, we'll keep you updated. Fascinating stuff, truly. Well, I want to take a, a hard left turn here <laughs> and talk about cold medicine. Well, we're still talking this pharmaceuticals is, here, you know, that's, something. Yeah, that's true. You know. That's true. There's a theme. Indeed, there's a theme. Yeah, a light theme, yeah. I was trying to think about why I get so fired up Thinking about <laughs> themes, <laughs> unifying motifs. Yeah. You're like I, that I guy. Don't know. You're kind of like that guy from the rehearsal who was obsessed with numerology and saw patterns oh and numbers and everything. <laughs> That's kind of what you're like with the legal news oh, podcast no. version. I really need to take a step back and look <laughs> inward a bit. Yeah, maybe. But anyway, cold anyway, medicine. cold medicine. As I'm sure everyone has gotten wind of by now, the FDA recently dropped a bomb of sorts and said that one of the most common ingredients in over-the-counter nasal decongestants does not work. We talked about this briefly in our production meeting <laughs> yesterday, but 
I'll just say this is not news to me. I don't mess around with a decongestant that you can just willy-nilly pull off a shelf and put into your basket. I'm up there at the pharmacy counter giving them my ID and getting, <laughs> getting that uh, pseudofedrin. That's what I'm after. Nice. But the reason we're talking about this today is, of course, this has resulted in litigation. All the class actions are starting to roll in. And that is catnip for us, as you, as you indicated. So before we get to the particulars of those cases, I actually missed this news. This, what you called a bombshell didn't come across my desk. Maybe I was off, <laughs> You're offline. not on the cold medicine beat, Alex? Doing, I was doing mental health that day, and it's frankly <laughs> rude of you to question that. But anyway, what is the ingredient that we're talking about, and what did the FDA say about it? We are talking about something called phenylephrine. It is a very common ingredient in oral nasal decongestant products. These are the Dayquils, Nyquils, Sudafed, and then the generic versions of those made by, you know, Target, Walgreens, CVS. I will note that this ingredient is not used in other types of decongestants like nasal sprays or inhalers. Those, according to the FDA, still work. So love that for us. There you go. What went down is the FDA revisited its earlier conclusion that these orally administered decongestants are as effective as my cold medicine of choice, <laughs> pseudofedrin. And basically, upon reexamining this, the FDA said that it found that the studies that it used way back in the day actually had very problematic methodologies and some of them went unpublished, so they weren't even peer-reviewed. Given the information that we have today and the ways in which we now evaluate congestion, love getting into the weeds on that, <laughs> um, the FDA found that phenylephrine just doesn't do it. It doesn't get the job done. Let's put the FDA aside for a second here. Haley, how do you evaluate congestion? <laughs> That's a great question. Are you a, a well, only because you referenced it, are you like an overly congested person during cold season? I think that I am. You know, I think maybe that's why I'm so passionate about this news. Yeah, maybe. I don't mean to put you on blast there. But <laughs> anyway, you seemed to ha How you, you seemed it, it called to you when we were talking about doing the story. So, it, it did call to me. Yeah. yeah. How do Our, you evaluate congestion? I have a sick immune system. And I mean sick in the positive way. I like really am not getting oh, sick wow. much at all these days. Maybe it's, I don't know what it is, but knock on wood Love for that. Love that for you. Anyway, um, let's get back to the litigation. So this is a, a fairly stark about face from the FDA to just say, oh yeah, this was like totally messed up from years and years ago. What are the lawsuits saying about it? What are the, I, I can imagine the, the, the shape of the class actions, but let's break it down a little bit. Yeah, they're, I would say they're fairly predictable here. Consumers are going after the manufacturers of these decongestants. They're claiming that the manufacturers misrepresented the efficacy of their products for years and years. And thus far, consumers have filed a handful of proposed class actions that target brand name manufacturers like Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson. But then they're also going after Walgreens and Target and, you know, all these grocery stores that make their own generic versions of the drugs. Generally speaking, they're claiming that the companies made billions of dollars by falsely advertising their products as actually effective. And the consumers say, obviously, they would not have purchased the products if they knew that they didn't work. Here is a good quote from one suit that was filed in New Jersey federal court. As one pharmacist who has led the examination of the efficacy of phenylephrine summarized it, 
if you have a stuffy nose and you take this medicine, you will still have a stuffy nose. This fact did not stand in the way of defendants continuing to sell phenylephrine products and charging a premium price for those ineffective products. Yeah, that's, so, that's quite something. It's not even like, oh, it's not effect- as effective as you said, or sometimes like a lot of these false advertising suits for consumer products is like, oh, you exaggerated, or it's not, it doesn't work the way you said, or it's more subtle. This is like, this straight up does not work at all. And right. that's a problem in my opinion. Yeah. In another suit that was filed earlier this week, the consumers got a little more specific. They said, P&G and Target have known that their products didn't work since at least 2018. And that's because that was the year that the FDA issued new guidance for measuring congestion, which I was trying to wrap my head around the differences. (laughs) And I simply, it was too much for me. I think it's too much to get into on the show. But just know, 2018, big year for for defining congestion. Well, we'll leave it to Discovery. If, if stuff pops up in Discovery that you, the right. listeners, need to know about it, we'll let you know. Yeah. Yes, we'll be back on the cold medicine beat. Don't yeah, worry. Oh, of course. Yeah. But uh, also, they say, the consumers say that over the last decade or so, there have been some really big clinical trials that were showing that phenylephrine isn't effective. So the evidence has been mounting, but these companies are still pushing their products. I'll also add that these suits started rolling in within days of the FDA announcement. And I think it's safe to say that we're going to see more. So definitely uh, watch this space for all your phenylephrine <laughs> and pseudoephedrine and all your congestion uh, litigation needs. We got you yes. covered here. All right. <laughs> Thanks, Haley. A pending Supreme Court case over a relatively obscure fishing industry rule may nevertheless hold huge implications for the entire legal system. In the case, the High Court will consider overturning the decades-old Chevron deference, which requires courts to defer to executive agencies' interpretations of ambiguous laws. The case has the federal government on high alert, with the DOJ filing a brief this week warning that overturning Chevron would be a convulsive shock to the legal system. Joining us this week to talk about the case and the stakes in the fight over Chevron is Law 360 senior environmental reporter Juan Carlos Rodriguez. JC, welcome back to Pro Se. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me back. It's nice to be here. Always great to see you. I'm so interested to talk about this case. And I want to start with some basics here. I think most of the people in our audience have at least some understanding of the Chevron deference, but I think it's important for what we're going to talk about here to at least get an overview of that doctrine and why it's become so important to the way government works and the way cases are litigated over government regulations. Yeah, so as you said, it's it's an environmentally based case, but that's really sort of beside the point. Back in 1984, the Supreme Court took this case um, and rejected an environmental group's challenge to a U.S. EPA rule that had defined what kinds of facilities had to get a particular kind of Clean Air Act permit. Mm -hmm. So the justices upheld the EPA's rule, but like, as we said, that was almost a sideshow to the real meat of the opinion, which was the way the justices arrived at their conclusions and how their analysis spawned this 
hugely important legal test that lower courts have used since then to this day to review many executive branch agency rules. So basically, the justices told lower courts to use a two-step process to determine if a federal agency rule was properly promulgated under the law. First step, court has to determine if the statutory language that the agency is basing its rule on is clear or ambiguous. If the language is clear, then the court has discretion to go ahead and implement Congress's intent as it sees fit in relation to that particular rule. If the language is ambiguous, the court goes to a second step of this Chevron process and has to evaluate and decide whether the regulating agency reasonably interpreted the law to support its rule. So if the court finds that the agency's interpretation is indeed reasonable, then it must defer to the agency. Um, and usually that means upholding the agency's rule. So as a consequence, of this decision, this Chevron test has become a routine feature of administrative law and litigation over government rules. Um, So federal agencies, rule opponents, rule supporters, and courts have become very familiar with and adept at navigating this legal framework over the years. As I mentioned, for agencies, it's become a really valuable tool since they're often granted deference by lower courts in rulemaking cases, whether it's a Republican or a Democratic administration. Okay. Well, so that all makes sense. But what exactly is the fight that we are seeing now over Chevron in the current case? Yeah. So this, I mean, Chevron, as I mentioned, has been used in thousands of cases, according to the Department of Justice up to now. In this particular case that the Supreme Court has decided to review, the National Marine Fisheries Service promulgated a rule in 2020 um, requiring some fishing vessel operators to pay part of the cost of federal observers who ride along with them in their boats and who are there to ensure compliance with other fishing and maritime regulations. So some herring fishers sued the, the service in Washington, D.C. Federal District Court on the grounds that the service exceeded its authority under the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act, Um, but they lost there. They appealed to the D.C. Circuit, but the D.C. Circuit affirmed the lower court's finding that the service's rule was reasonable under a Chevron step two review. And at this point, the fishers have convinced the Supreme Court to review the case, so that's what we're all looking forward to now. I'm like quietly obsessed with this discussion here because what you just laid out is like about as granular of a dispute over rulemaking can get. We're talking, I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize like, you know, the financial burden of paying for federal monitors in the fishing industry, but it's not the kind of thing that like always grabs headlines. But what does grab headlines here is the idea that, that the court has an open door or could, you know, see an opening to really cut down the power of the executive branch. Um, and that appears to be at the heart of what you wrote about this week, which is that the federal government, the DOJ, filed a brief that in no uncertain terms expressed quite a bit of uh, alarm here. Can you tell us about what they wrote? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, The stakes are high, and the Department of Justice is fully defending the Chevron doctrine as it exists um, in this case. 
They filed a brief on Monday, as you said, that laid out their position and basically said that if the Supreme Court were to take the side of the Fishers who are challenging this rule, it will send, I think you said earlier too, a convulsive shock through the legal system. And I think that's probably pretty accurate. You know, as as we talked about, you know, the DOJ said it's thousands of cases that mm-hmm. have relied upon this doctrine over the years to, you know, and there's lots of rules that come out from the executive branch in every administration. And so it's become a tried and true tool for courts to use. The DOJ argued to the justices that Chevron, as it exists, should be upheld under the principles of stare decisis. It should be granted, I think they said, you know, the maximum level of stare decisis because Congress has the power to clarify any misunderstanding about its intent and relating to federal rules, but has not done so. So Chevron should remain in place. Um, The department also said that the doctrine makes sense because judges don't have the same expertise and technical and scientific knowledge that federal agencies do. So it just sort of makes sense and is right to give deference to the expert regulators. But, uh, you know, of course, we've seen recently that the court is willing to depart from some longstanding sort of foregone legal conclusions if enough justices feel it's warranted. So yeah, who knows how it's going to go from here. Yeah, it's interesting. I We haven't mentioned yet, and we'll probably get to this, but the other kind of box that this fits into is that this fight over Chevron is part of a broader discussion that, you know, a lot of conservative activists have been having about what they call the administrative state. That's their term. And the idea that regulators and executive rulemakers are basically like a fourth branch of the government that has too much power and they don't like that. It is interesting to think about reversing this because it's not like if you reverse a case that you decided and now the law is different. This is reversing an entire like way of deciding any case that involves a federal rule, which you see it play out in healthcare a lot, employment a lot, any kind of like, you know, overly technical regulatory space, you can understand where the friction is there. Yeah. And you can start to imagine, you know, for instance, under the Clean Water Act, certain cases uh, go to federal district courts yeah. at first. So they're dispersed across the United States and, and sometimes many jurisdictions on the same question. Mm-hmm. So imagine, you know, a, a federal district court judge in Nebraska analyzing, you know, some, you know, Clean Water Act, um, scientific technical information while a judge in California is doing the same thing. And they could arrive at, you know, totally different conclusions using wildly different um, analyses if they gain the authority, I guess, to, you know, do this type of scientific analysis themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas now it's they have sort of an easy out almost to defer to agencies and just they can kind of say, yep, uh, this seems reasonable under the law. Let's let the regulators have the final say here. Case closed. But as you mentioned, it's been a years long effort on behalf of, yeah, mainly conservative legal groups to undermine and ultimately, you know, eliminate um, the Chevron doctrine for the very reasons you outlined, gives too much power to the administrative state, even though it often, you know, as I mentioned earlier, benefits Republican administrations just as much as Democratic ones. Well, so this is a great segue into my question for you, which this is nothing new. People challenging this standard, um, as you said, 
But why are we actually talking about it here today? Why is this actually getting some traction this time around? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah, the million-dollar question. So just in the recent past, Justices Neil Gorsuch and Clarence Thomas have openly expressed their view that Chevron deference kind of improperly takes decision-making power away from judges and gives it to, quote, bureaucrats, as Justice Gorsuch put it in a dissent last term. But until now, they haven't squarely addressed the question of, of Chevron deference in a, in a case. We've certainly seen a willingness on this court, usually by the conservative majority, to thwart executive branch agency actions that are deemed to exceed an agency's statutory authority. Um, Those cases can often be directly tied to lower courts' uh, deference to agency decision-making. So the court taking the case, like, isn't too surprising considering some of the skepticism we've heard towards Chevron over the past few years. But why this case in particular? I think that the justices' questions during oral arguments will give us a lot better understanding about that. Because at this point, all we know is the court has taken the case. No one's said anything about it specifically. So during arguments, will they focus on whether the D.C. Circuit simply got its Chevron analysis wrong Yeah. in the context of this fishing rule? Or will they probe for ways to kind of pry a crowbar into some of the assumptions about the Chevron doctrine in the process? Or will they really go for the bullseye and ask questions that exhibit a uh, explicit desire to undermine the use of Chevron at all? So we don't have a date for oral arguments yet, but obviously we're all on pins and needles waiting for that. We certainly are. It's a it's a fascinating case with like, we're, I, I think we've, I think you've ably laid out the uh, the huge implications here and, uh, you know, depending on how these arguments go, maybe we'll have you back. I'm, I'm very interested in this one. So thanks again, JC, for stopping by and talking us through it. My pleasure. Anytime. All right. Thanks. So that'll wrap us up this week. Uh, I thought this was a tremendous show, and I'm uh, very happy that you were here to host it with me, Haley. Absolutely. A great show. Thank you, Alex. As always, we have many people to thank for helping us put the show on. That includes our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our guest, Juan Carlos Rodriguez, and contributing reporters this week, Catherine Marfin, Ryan Davis, Lauren Berg, and Henrik Nilsson. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please do leave us a written review on your favorite podcast platform. That helps us out tremendously. It boosts us up uh, in the various rankings and help people find the show. We really appreciate that. If you want to read more about anything we talked about today, just head to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week.